<clears throat> Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Nathan, for your welcome and introduction. Let me add my welcome. It's great to see you. And uh, great to be heading back again into uh, this uh, story and uh, this book of uh, 2 Samuel. And uh, one of the things that God is teaching us from these chapters in 2 Samuel is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom built upon the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of God is built upon the forgiveness of sins. That is, becoming a Christian, if I can put it this way, is not like having an insurance policy against a future event or a kind of vaccine against a possibility of disease. And it's certainly not adding a nice spiritual dimension to your life to make you a bit more rounded. Becoming a Christian is to face up to the great crisis of sin and guilt and death and judgment and find rescue and healing and transformation through the cross of Christ. Let me put it like this. Jesus was not lifted up on the cross to make us religious people. He was lifted up on the cross as a real saviour for real sinners that we might live. And when Christ died on the cross for our sins, a new and unique force for good had entered the world. I believe it's the great concern of the author of 2 Samuel, the divinely inspired author, to teach us these things, to give us a foretaste of the reality before they come in Christ. It is this awesome power of forgiveness that even in the midst of sin's consequences, we are going to see in the passage before us this morning. But before we turn back to our passage, I thought I'd briefly show you why I am convinced that this is the narrator's great concern. A visitor uh, last week asked the person who'd brought them why it was that they believed that what I said these stories were about is what they're about, if that makes sense. Uh, why is it that I know that these stories mean what I'm telling you all that they mean? It's a good question. It's an excellent question. You should never believe something simply because I or anybody else in this pulpit says it's true. That, if you think about it, is a difference between a cult leader and a church leader. A cult leader says, believe this because I say it's true. A church leader says, believe this and let me show you in the Bible why it's true. And so it's a good question, isn't it? How does the person in the pulpit know that these things are the case? Make sure what you are taught is what the Bible actually says. So, before we get into the passage, I'm going to just take a moment to offer a bit of a lesson on how we read Old Testament narratives, and I hope that is helpful. There's much more we could say, but I just want to say one thing. And that is that we need to pay attention when we're reading these narratives, not only to the details of the story, not only to the story itself, but the way the story has been told. We have to look at the craft of the narrator as well as the story itself. Sometimes the medium <clears throat> is part of the message, isn't it? And sometimes what the narrator has chosen not to mention and the arrangement of his material is as important as the story itself. So in this particular case, I want you to notice that the narrator is not particularly concerned with chronology. He's not particularly concerned with the sort of historical kind of order of things. His concern is much more on the story itself. He is more interested in his message than historical order. So have a look with me. Look back at the beginning of uh, chapter 11. Uh, first verse of chapter 11 or second verse, you'll see 
that the story of David and Bathsheba begins with the siege of the Ammonite city of Rabbah. It's first mentioned there in 11 verse 1. And then if you just look back at the end of chapter 12, as we just heard, the end of the siege is reported there. So, the story of David and Bathsheba, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It takes up chapter 11 and 12. And it's given this framework, isn't it, by the war against the Ammonites. But the events in between the framework have actually lasted several years. So we know that Bathsheba has conceived and given birth at least twice. So that's at least two lots of nine months, isn't it, in my reckoning? Uh, Perhaps a little bit more like two years. And in fact, in 1 Chronicles 3 verse 5, which kind of gives us a parallel account of these events, we are surprised to learn that David and Bathsheba actually had three other sons prior to Solomon. Sons our narrator chooses not to mention. So I think, by my reckoning, we're looking in this story of a period of at least, well, how long does it take to have four children? (laughs) It took us a, 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 how how long did it take? I forget. (laughs) Five years. Oh, that's quite good going. So we're looking at a stretch of uh, four or five years at least. So it's much more likely, isn't it, that the siege end, reported at the end of chapter 12, actually happened before the events narrated in the middle of the chapter. So why does the narrator do this? Why does he put the events at the end like a kind of a flashback? Well, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember uh, me saying that these stories are narratives of theologically significant events. They're narratives of theologically significant events. He's not just recording a story for the sake of recording it. And the narrator is much more interested in the theological significance of the events than the bare historical chronological order. And that is something that is different to Bible authors to modern historians. So in this case, the narrator's deliberate choice to top and tail chapters 11 and 12 with the siege of Rabbah has a particular effect on the way we read the story. He begins and ends with the public and political and military side of David's life. And in between, he gives us the story of David and Bathsheba. So we have public and private. You get the public story, the national, the military, the kingdom story, and in between you get the bedroom story. So you have an envelope of the battlefield, and inside is the bedroom. Now can you see the significance of this? The narrator clearly wants us to connect those two things together. And this is different to the way we tend to think. In our world, have you noticed when a political leader falls <clears throat> into some kind of sleaze or something involving sex or drugs or some other personal matter, people often want to argue that what happens in the private life of the leader has no effect on their public role or service. You notice this, it happens time and time again. And it's often said, and this is the phrase that is often used, that what happens in the bedroom as long as it's between two consenting adults, which is the sum total of our society's sexual ethic now, isn't it? Whatever happens in the bedroom has no effect on that person's ability to do their role. There was a recent example of this. Matt Hancock, the health secretary, was sacked, not because he had broken his marriage vows of 17 years by conducting an adulterous affair, but because he had broken COVID social distancing rules. Doesn't that speak volumes about our society? But that is not the Bible's view at all. 
No, the Bible's view is what happens in the bedroom is enormously significant for public leadership because leadership is much more about character and faithfulness than about competency. If you can't keep your word to your spouse, how can you be trusted to keep your word to the nation? And so I think it matters enormously, doesn't it, that we have a health minister who has broken his marriage vows It matters enormously that we have a prime minister who has lost count of his offspring, been divorced multiple times, cohabited with his girlfriend before marriage. It matters that the Queen's son is embroiled in a child sex scandal. It should be a source of tremendous shame to us as a society to be led by such men and women like that. And none of what I've just said should be taken as a political statement at all. This is why the church elders in 1 Timothy 3 are to be faithful to their wives and to manage their households well. Otherwise, how can they lead a church? And if that's the case for church leaders, it's certainly the case for the king of Israel. And so the narrator has placed David's sexual failure in the context of the war with the Ammonites. He wants us to see that there is a connection between these two things. The bedroom and the battlefield are connected. But having said all that, that should now have raised another puzzle for us with these chapters. I mentioned that David's sexual failure in the bedroom, but as we'll see, the chapter ends with his resounding success on the battlefield. Failure in the bedroom, success on the battlefield. What does that mean? Does that mean that David actually can do no wrong? That actually in the end it doesn't matter what he does in the bedroom because he's going to be successful anyway? Well, not at all. And one way the narrator makes this clear is what he puts right in the middle of the story. Here's another little kind of tip on reading Old Testament narratives. Sometimes actually what is more important is what is in the middle rather than what is at the end. We're always taught at primary school, aren't we, that as we write a story, you kind of build to a climax, and the climax is at the end. But actually, in the Old Testament narrative, sometimes the climax, the most telling thing is in the middle. And if you work your way in, chapter 11, chapter 12, you'll see a series of concentric circles. And right in the middle, we come to chapter 11, verse 27. Those words which sort of reverberate around the story 11.27, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. There it is, right in the very center of the story. Here is the crucial theological concern for the narrator. How is it possible for God's king, who has failed so spectacularly in the bedroom, to succeed so spectacularly on the battlefield? That is the question that we're being given in these chapters. How can the everlasting kingdom that has been promised in chapter 7, a kingdom of peace and holiness, a kingdom that cannot tolerate wickedness, how can a kingdom like that be established by a sinner like David? That's the question that these chapters are presenting to us. Well, Nathan's already reminded us of the answer in 12 verse 13, the answer given by the prophet Nathan, the Lord has taken away your sin. This kingdom is not going to be built on military might, but it's going to be built on the forgiveness of sins. That's the point. Because this is not only about David's failure, it's about his restoration. 
And as we come to the end of the David and Bathsheba story, we're going to see that this forgiveness comes at a great price. It comes at a great price for David and for God. First, David has got to relearn God's place in the world. And then he's got to receive God's grace. And those are our two headings. So relearning God's place, firstly, in 15 to 23. Pick up the story then in verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David's sins of covetousness, adultery, and murder, and the web of lies he's told to cover it all up, have been, Nathan the prophet told us in verse 13, been taken away by God. So we get to verse 15, and we know David has been forgiven. Does that mean that like a fairy godmother waving a magic wand, all his troubles are over? Does forgiveness mean that you can go back in time and start again? Well, not at all. And so what we're beginning to see is that there are consequences of sin, even in the context of forgiveness. The immediate consequence is that the son born to David as a result of this affair with Bathsheba becomes sick and then dies. And how David reacts to this is deeply revealing. Verse 16. David pleaded, literally sought, God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. David's behavior baffles his household. Fasting and mourning for seven days is a common response to someone's death in the Bible, but this happens before the child dies. Of course, in normal circumstances, any believing parent with a seriously sick child will pray earnestly for their child's recovery. But this is not any parent, and these are not normal circumstances. David's behavior actually shows the effect of the word of God upon him. What Nathan said to him has brought genuine repentance and total humility. It's a complete transformation. Notice the repentance in David's prayers. David knows, as we are told in verse 15, that the child has been struck by the Lord. And he knows that the Lord striking the child is connected to his own sin, something the narrator reminds us of by insisting on Bathsheba being called Uriah's wife still. And so isn't it remarkable that the first thing David does is turn to the very Lord he has sinned against. David has spent chapter 11 ignoring God, hiding from God, running away from God. And now he turns to God. He seeks God with all of his heart. The severity of God's judgment has not made God unapproachable to David. Just the opposite. God is the one David wants to be with. He is the one David is pleading with. David knows that it's God who has struck the child. And David knows that only God can restore the child. Well, if David's repentance is seen in his prayer, then notice his posture, which reveals his humility. I wonder if you notice that David is lying on the ground and refusing to eat. These are the two things we're told repeatedly about him. He is lying on the ground and he is refusing to eat. And that posture is meant to make us think of Uriah, the man he killed. Because he refused the normal pleasures of life, didn't he, back in chapter 11. 
He lay on the ground with the king's servants. Instead of going home, he refused to eat with his wife. And so David has now changed places with Uriah. He has been completely humbled. He has now taken the place of the man he killed. Well, this humility and genuine repentance is, as I say, a work of the word of God in David's life. He is a changed man. But we now learn that his prayer is answered negatively. Verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How could we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child is dead. Is the child dead, he answered. He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Did you notice the repetition as I read those verses? Six times in two verses we hear the word dead or died. There's no word for yes in the Hebrew language. And so at the end of 19, there's just a two-syllable, single, a two-letter, two, single-syllable word. Is the child dead? Dead. And so it's a scene of the most terrible human pain and sadness. The death of the child born to David as a result of his adulterous affair, therefore raises some profound questions for us at this point in the narrative. The first question, which I know a number of us have discussed during the course of the week, is whether the child dies in place of David. In striking the child, is God transferring the punishment that David deserved onto the child? Is the death of this child effectively an atoning sacrifice for David's sin? Is it necessary that the child dies so that David could, could live? Do you see the question? Well, that is what Bible teacher and pastor Tim Chester argues in his generally helpful little commentary on 2 Samuel. He says this. He says, David sinned and deserved to die, but someone else died in his place. Not only that, but it was David's son he died. And so this is appointed to Christ. David's son will die for the sins of the world. It's tempting to make that conclusion. I can see why people do. It's certainly very neat. The child dies, David lives. But at the risk of disagreeing with Tim, who I appreciate and respect hugely, I think this is a mistake. The Bible does not present us, as far as I can see, with the possibility that one human could die to pay for the sins of another. This would be a travesty of justice, especially in the case of an innocent newborn baby. This is why it's so important to remember when Jesus dies on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, he is doing something utterly unique as both man and God. He represents us in his humanity, but he steps into our place not as a third party, but as God himself, the very one we have offended. So I don't think we should see this death as a substitute for David. Well, if not, then what is it? Well, what it is, is simply the consequences of sin. See, those consequences of sin impact innocent third parties. That's the point. And the consequences of sin rumble on even in the context of forgiveness. In fact, the death of the child is just the beginning of a series of terrible consequences 
for David and his family that are going to rumble on for the rest of his life, as we'll see next week. And so I think it's important that we just take stock here and grasp this important lesson. That even in the kingdom of forgiveness, sin has consequences. Sin is dangerous and destructive. And the consequences of sin are for the sinner and the completely innocent bystander who is caught up in it. Of course, not all suffering can be traced directly to a particular sin as in this case. But think about the baby born to a heroin addict. They're not being punished for their mother's addiction, but they're suffering the consequences. Think about children caught up in a a damaged and broken marriage. They're not being punished for their sins of the parents, but they're suffering the consequences. And if a person finds themselves married to an unfaithful spouse, even when there is heartfelt repentance and genuine forgiveness, that broken relationship is going to take an enormous amount of time to repair. If you break my heart or break my body or mind, or abuse me, or misuse me, I can forgive you. But it doesn't mean to say that we're going to be reconciled instantly. It doesn't mean to say that the trust is going to be there right from the word go. Forgiveness is not a magic wand. Sin has consequences. I think this has all sorts of implications for us as we relate to each other as forgiven sinners. God has created this universe with a fixed moral order. You cannot tamper with it without doing harm. You cannot sin and keep sinning and not suffer consequences in this life or cause suffering for others, even in the context of forgiveness. Well, in the second half of the chapter, we're going to see a a very positive counterpart to that point, but that is the first question. The second question the death of the baby raises is this. And this is the question that we should all have been asking if you've been here for the course of this series. What about the promise of God now? Remember in chapter 7, God made a promise that his everlasting kingdom is going to come from David's offspring, from one of his own body. Verse 12 of chapter 7. And now the offspring of David is dead. And so the question, the real question we should be asking is what is going to happen to that promise now? Well, we'll come back to that later, but just as these questions are being raised, David's behavior gets even more strange. Look at what he does next. Verse 20, David got up from the ground. After he'd washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. We get a brisk chain of seven or eight verbs, no speech, no explanation. And we watch, don't we, as David picks himself up and he resumes normal life. Gets up, has a shower, puts on some smellies, changes his clothes, goes to the tabernacle, goes home, has a plate of steak and chips or whatever they bring him. First meal for a week. He is a new man. And his servants are saying, no, this is all wrong. They're whispering among themselves, and then they directly tell him in, in, in quite a kind of direct way. He says, what are you doing? This is the wrong thing to do. It's the reverse of what people normally do. 
He's mourned for the child while the child is alive, and now the child is dead. He's, he's getting on with his life. Well, look at the answer. It's profoundly revealing. Verse 22. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will not return to me. What is David thinking here? What's in his mind? I wonder if we can work it out. Well, I think David's behavior here is totally consistent with somebody who believes in the sovereign grace of God. That is, David knows that God is good, and he knows that God is completely in charge. He believes in his sovereign grace. See, David knows that God is good. He knows that God is gracious. That's why he keeps praying. It is in God's character to relent. Even though God has said, I'm bringing this great punishment on you, I'm going to bring great trouble on you for your sins, David still prays that God might relent. And so he doesn't give up hope. He seeks God. He keeps praying based on the grace of God. And so there's a great lesson for us here. We need never be fatalistic in the fate of sickness. God can heal. God is gracious. But David also knows that God is sovereign. He is completely in control, particularly of death, which is irreversible. It is in his hands. And so once the child dies, there is the answer to God, David's prayer. There is God's will revealed. And he knows there's nothing further he can do. He is in God's hands. God has made his decision. Sovereign grace. It's a great lesson in prayer, isn't it? David has poured his heart out in prayer, but he's quietly accepted God's decision and he trusts God's goodness. And so by the end of verse 23, I think we can see something profoundly important has taken place in David's heart. David, who had asserted his authority over God in the previous chapter, had actually been playing God, if you like has relearned God's place in his world. It's been a hard, hard lesson. It's been full of tears. But at the end of it, David has learned that God is God. That he has created a world with a moral order that must not be broken. That the future is in his hands alone. That he is on the throne, that he is gracious but that his answer is final. He has learned that God is God. And there are many people in this room who have learned this through suffering. I know that some people, some Christians tell us that as long as you pray and fast and believe, God will answer your prayer, that he will heal that child or spouse or friend or parent. And so all we've got to do is pray harder and really believe. But if you've been told that, you've been told a lie. God is gracious, yes. We should never be fatalistic about these things. He may heal, but he is sovereign. And as I say, there are people in our church family right now who are going through this. There are people who have learned this through suffering. The sovereign grace of God to pray in hope and the knowledge of God's sovereign grace. And whatever the answer, you learn that God is God. 
Well, that's what David has learnt in the first half of the passage, but that's not all he learns. The second thing we need to see is that having learnt God's place, he's going to receive God's grace in 24 to 31. See, this is the counterpart to what I've been saying so far. We've seen that sin has consequences. And I think it's been a hard lesson for us to learn, hasn't it? Hard as it was for David, too. Sin has consequences, and I have to warn you that those consequences are going to become pretty horrible in chapter 13 and 14. But what we're going to see in the rest of our passage is the stunning truth that not only does sin have consequences, but forgiveness has consequences too. The forgiveness that God has already given to David by taking away his sin turns out to be an enormous power for good for his family and his kingdom. Firstly, for his family. Look with me at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, And he went to her and lay with her. I don't know what you think the greatest surprise in all these chapters is, but I think it's right there. The greatest surprise is that God blesses David's marriage to Bathsheba. God blesses David's marriage to Bathsheba. Notice that for the first time, the narrator refers to her as David's wife, something he had pointedly avoided up till now. Notice, too, that for the first time, David treats her as his wife. Back in 1126, when she mourned for her husband, there was no mention of comfort. Now she mourns for their son, and David comforts her. And perhaps most remarkably of all, their sexual relationship, previously such a sordid and destructive affair, is now legitimate and proper source of joy, even, as we'll see in a moment, it is blessed by God. And again, this raises a sordid and destructive way. And that raises all kinds of questions for us. At a very human level, we are bound to ask, I think, did David, having confessed his sins to Nathan and to God, now confess to the woman he had wronged, whose husband he had killed? Can you imagine that conversation? And without going beyond what the text tells us, I think it's hard to imagine him doing otherwise, or his marriage would be built on a lie. And if that's right, that does tell us something about the remarkable power of forgiveness of sins in human relationships, doesn't it? How easy do you think it would have been for Bathsheba to forgive David in that situation? Of course, it's never easy, is it, to forgive somebody who has genuinely hurt you? It's not easy, but where the grace of God is at work, even this miracle is possible. Jesus explains how this works a number of times in the New Testament. So, for example, in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus how many times he should forgive someone who sins against him. In answer, Jesus tells a story of two servants in debt. In the parable, one servant is forgiven an astronomical debt by his master and then goes on to refuse to cancel a much smaller debt he is owed by someone else. And the point Jesus is making is if you have been forgiven an enormous debt which you could never pay at huge cost, then there is something terribly wrong if you cannot forgive someone who has sinned against you. 
This is so important that Jesus even includes this in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And listen to this in Colossians 3, 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In other words, if you understand forgiveness and mercy and compassion that God has given you, you become a person of forgiveness, mercy and compassion. Or to put this another way, what is restored vertically becomes the means of restoration horizontally. And the forgiveness that God gives to us in Christ becomes ours to give in human relationships. It flows out to do a tremendous amount of good in the world. Now, does this mean that David actually gained from his sin? People say crime doesn't pay, but maybe crime does pay after all. David has committed adultery. He's ended up with a beautiful wife and family that God is blessing. Does that mean David actually gained from his sin? Well, of course not. But let me put it like this. David did not gain from his sin, but he did gain from the grace of God. Now pick it up in verse 24 and notice that the story of God's grace is not only for his family, but for his kingdom as well, indeed the whole world. Because look at what happens. Verse 24, she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. The name Solomon is based on that great Hebrew word shalom, the wonderful rich word for peace, which means so much more than the absence of hostilities. It's really got the idea of fulfillment of all God's promises, a blessing over all of God's world. And so the name of this son carries that idea into the future, that God is going to build this kingdom into a kingdom of peace and perfect harmony. I notice that strange detail in verse 24, that the Lord loved him something that is given double emphasis by his extra name. What is all this about? Was there something particularly nice about this baby Solomon? Does God show favoritism? What about all, others, all David's other sons and daughters? Well, leave a finger in chapter 12 and just flip back a couple of pages to chapter 7. This, you may remember, is God's promise to David regarding the future, given through the prophet Nathan, here he is speaking of David's offspring who will come after him. Pick it up in verse 13. 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. He, that is the offspring, will be the one to build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, the fact that God loved Solomon doesn't mean that God had a particular affection for Solomon over and above anybody else. It means that Solomon was going to be the means by which God was going to keep his promise in chapter 7 and carry David's kingdom forwards. There's nothing special or deserving about Solomon, but God has set his sovereign grace upon him, and David's kingdom will continue through him. And so all of this, from a relationship that began with lust and ended in murder, 
What amazing sovereign grace. Only a God of sovereign grace can bring life from death like this. Only this kind of God can keep his promises to establish his perfect kingdom, no matter the sinfulness of men. Only this God has such power and grace that nothing can thwart his purposes. And that is why the chapter that has been told, that has been telling the story of David's spectacular failure in the bedroom, ends with his spectacular success on the battlefield. It is God's sovereign grace at work. Even David's sin cannot thwart his purposes. And so, verse 26, we see that Joab has been fighting against Rabbah and he's captured the royal citadel. The narrative now returns to the public realm. And it ends this chapter on an extraordinarily high note. Just note a couple of details. First, Joab, who we're going to meet again in the future. He's an interesting character. He's fiercely loyal to David. And notice what he does in verse 27 to 28. He gives David the glory. Joab has been fighting this battle while David has been luxuriating in sexual immorality in Jerusalem. And yet Joab says, I want you to have all the glory. I did the work, but you're going to get the glory, the name. Is that fair? Of course it's not fair. But this has not been a story about fairness. This has been a story about the grace of God. And so great is God's grace to David and secure his promises that even the great sins of the king cannot stop those purposes from coming about. And the second detail is to notice the simply enormous crown that is placed on David's head. Now, crowns are symbols. It's not that David needs to wear a hat. Students who are learning two ways to live, the symbol we have to draw is the crown, isn't it, on that gospel outline. We draw a big crown, and it symbolizes God, and everybody knows. And look at this crown. It is enormous. We're told it's a talent of gold embedded with precious stones. No doubt the prize object, it's the crown jewels of the Ammonite kingdom. And we're told in the footnote, just in case you don't know what a talent of gold is, that it's 74, 75 pounds or 34 kilos. Now, how do you picture that, that weight? Well, the biggest turkey in the booth's Christmas catalogue is nine kilos. A whopping turkey that booths say will feed up to 18 people. So this crown weighs almost four times Booth's biggest turkey. Imagine that sitting on your head. And so the chapter leaves us with an unmistakable picture. It's almost a comical picture. It's extreme. It reminds me of one of Becky Byram's family service props. Becky, can you make a crown? She'll turn up with something five foot by three. So it's unmistakable. What is the picture the chapter leaves us with? Who is the king of the world? It's the man with the big crown on his head. Who is the one who reigns uncontested? It is David. Not because of his righteousness, we now know. Not because of his efforts or godliness. But because of the grace of God. This is to be a kingdom built on the forgiveness of sins. And so look at how this long and brilliant story 
of sordid sin and amazing grace ends in verse 31. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. That last line rounds off the story that began in 11.1 in Jerusalem. David remaining there while the army fought the wall and falling into sin. And now humbled, restored, forgiven, the king returns to Jerusalem and takes up his rule. And so the story ends with a picture of a kingdom united around a king who is secure in the grace of God. Kingdom of Shalom, a kingdom built on the forgiveness of sins. At least that's how the chapter ends for now. Next week we will come back and we'll see that David's troubles are just beginning. But his restoration is to point us to a fuller restoration to come. That restoration comes only when Jesus, David's greatest son, dies on the cross to put everything back in its proper place, to restore all things, to usher in at last a kingdom built on the forgiveness of sins. Not his own sins, but those of his people. And so as we conclude, let me ask you, do you want to be part of that kingdom? Do you want to be part of that kingdom forever? Do you want all your sin and guilt taken away as David's was? Do you want to entrust all the wrongs done against you to the one who will put them right in the end? Do you want to experience the transforming power of forgiveness in your life? Then the purpose of this chapter has been to cause us to look again at the cross, to see the weight of your sin and its consequences and the greatness of God's grace and its consequences. And so come again to Jesus, the King of forgiveness, who restores all things and one day will include us in the kingdom of grace. Well, why don't we pray together? And before we pray, you'll see on the bottom of the sheet, I put Colossians 1, 14 and 15, which I think are a good summary of what we've seen and an invitation to benefit from it, to make this forgiveness our own. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for helping us this morning through distractions. We do pray again for Mabel as she is cared for now by the medics. We pray that you would help her to uh, recover. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that what we've seen this morning of Jesus will sink in deep. We thank you for reminding us that we stand before you as people of great crushing debt, that we're in need of your forgiveness. And we're also aware that we are people who have been sinned against and we need to forgive. And we thank you for Jesus who took away all our debts and paid for them when he died on the cross. And as we look at the cross, we understand afresh the deadly seriousness of sin and the awesome greatness of your grace. We look to him in thankfulness, amazement, and hope. Amen.